Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. This is a wonderful duet between Tim and Charlie. Andy is not here, and I want to remind all of our listeners, it's a great time to pray for the Stearns family, and Tim has a little announcement here for us there, too. Yeah, uh, Robin's um, in hospice now, and so uh, pray for her, and um, there'd be some uh, measure of pain that's relieved, and that um, she can just have a good time with the kids and with Andy, and uh, the president of Faith, Jim Tillotson, created a GoFundMe page. If you'd like to donate to that, I'm sure they'd appreciate it as well. But as Andy has said, even on previous episodes, that life does go on. And um, we have an episode that we're going to record, and I pray that it's a blessing for you. Uh, But as we even go through this episode, just reflect, take a moment, maybe pause the podcast and say a prayer for them. Uh, Our friends are hurting. We love them, and we'd appreciate that. And I guess along that lines, I will throw in an Andy quote. So the, the probably the book that I think about Andy the most, which I am reading again this fall, because I always, I, I like to go through it in the fall, the start of a school year, and share from it with my students. That is The Intellectual Life by mm. A.G. Sertayange. And probably the first time, this, this might not even have been recorded in an episode, but it was one of our earlier meetings yeah, where he had been reading that. Yeah, Andy was the one that put us onto that book, and we were reading it together before we had a podcast. Well, and then we noticed in Habits of the Mind that Sire quotes this guy all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, just, I can remember Andy saying he's incredibly quotable. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely true. This is just dripping with, with quotes. And so I have like dozens, dozens of them. Um. I don't even know. Just pick one. So this this is a good this is a good thinklings uh themed idea. So this this is in his uh I believe the second larger unit. Or no, it's it's the first the first big one is the intellectual vocation. And then the subsection underneath of that, the intellectual has a sacred call, and then the second subheading, the intellectual does not stand alone. And This is on page 12. I really like this quote. As life-giving is solitude, so paralyzing and sterilizing is isolation. Hmm. Solitude and isolation. Yeah, so he's he's drawn a parallel there. And he's like, it's good to have solitude. And he's Uh going to really exalt solitude in the next big heading, the organization of life. Mm -hmm. He's going to talk about simplifying and having quiet times. Yeah. But then he's like, but there's a difference between solitude and isolating yourself. Like you need people. And so, uh, well, that will, from page 12 there, as life giving is solitude, so paralyzing and sterilizing is isolation. And I wonder if he realized his, well, he, so this was a translation. Yeah. It's written in French. So he would not have intentionally rhymed that, but the translator did. And I, it does kind of roll off the tongue. Paralyzing and sterilizing is isolation. So you, you'll limit yourself if you isolate yourself. That's right. If your book gets translated into into another language, get a good translator. (laughs) Or not, and just let it happen. (laughs) 
Anyway, so <laughs> on that note, we have some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about some books. And we, of all the things we talked about before, do you have something that you've been reading or working on? Um, I've been working on an article on the burnt offering. So I've been reading Leviticus commentaries. I know that's a very great interest of all of our listeners, but some we had some legal reading. <laughs> um, we had some listener feedback and, uh, one of them was, uh, concerning Brandon Sanderson's book, uh, that I met, I mentioned the way of Kings and, uh, John Swedberg actually wrote in and filled in a lot of the gaps. And he said that, uh, Sanderson's a Mormon, uh, which kind of explains why his books are a lot cleaner than a lot of the books written today. Um, some of the books do touch on uh, grown-up themes, and he said he'd rate them probably like a PG-13. Um, so uh, anyway, uh, he said the Warbreaker book uh, would be one to steer away from with the kids. I don't know what that means, but uh, I'm probably going to follow his guidance. But we've had a few different people write in about some of the topics we've been uh, communicating re- recently. And so I want to try to just bring one of those up every once in a while, and uh, particularly some of these duets. So thanks, John, for writing in and filling us in a little bit on Brandon Sanderson and The Way of Kings. And there was another one that had written in, which was Caleb Lobb, correct? And he had mentioned something about In the House of Bombadil, like a song. And he's like, I don't know if Charlie's heard about this. Yes, Caleb, I have. And, uh, but it's nice to, uh, to have someone remind me of good things. And then he had mentioned that he and his wife are going to read your book, Tim, even though it's not for them. So this is something I've learned about my book because it's, okay, this is like a publishing. <laughs> Do you see how I like perfectly thing. placed the ball on the tee for you? And Tim's about ready to smack it. <laughs> well, it just happened. So we were at the Women's Renew Conference this last weekend, and our book's title is Song of Songs for Singles. So because it's singles, everybody just assumes it's not going to be anything that's going to help them. Not to mind that we have a lot of mothers there with parents there, and they're raising singles. Kids who are not currently married. Exactly. Right. And so Ange actually led a session on um, the importance of teaching the song to the next generation. And it was like a deja vu moment for a lot of uh, moms who are like, oh, this is going to be an important part of the education for my kid. And we're like, yeah. But it just kind of taught me, okay, this is how you get these spinoffs where you get Song of Songs for Singles, Song of Songs for Parents, Song of Songs for Married Couples, Song of Songs for Newly Engaged Girls or whatever else. You know what I mean? And they they do all these different spinoffs because actually it's not just for marketing. I was attributed to marketing, but the clientele yeah. expects something that's more directly connected to them. Yeah. So anyway, it is going to be helpful for you, I pray, Caleb. Yes. So, uh, and just we'll say again, thank you for listening. Thank you for taking the time to send us an email. And you might not always make it, you, you plural, so all of our listeners, you might not always make it to the very end of the podcast, but we will remind you that you can always email us, uh, tell us what you're reading, mm-hmm. give us a topic suggestion. And uh, in fact, Caleb, I think in his email, suggested something to us, uh, which is an Old Testament question, Tim. So uh, might have to have you uh, put your eye on that again. Um but yeah, thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for sending us stuff. And uh, I've got a book that I have finished for the second time, which is like, whoa, you know? Uh, how, how good does a book have to be for you to read it a second time? Well, 
there's a reason that I read it a second time. It's because I assign it in a class. And uh, what I think I do somewhat uniquely, which it's not unique to me. I'm sure there have been thousands upon thousands of professors over the years that have done things like this. And I know that's to be true because some are famous. Some of these techniques are famously named after some of these individuals. But instead of assigning a textbook and saying, I want you to read this book by November 10th and tell me that you read it. I break a book into sections, you know, a manageable amount of pages, 30, 40 ish. And every, and my students know this semester, every Thursday at 10 AM, they have a reading assignment due. And along with that reading assignment, they have a writing assignment where they are supposed to critically engage with some of the ideas in that week's reading. And the purpose of the writing assignment is to then come into class and you have like three, three concrete ideas that you can discuss with your classmates. So they are reading, writing, and rehearsing that information three times. And so I like to read what they're reading so that I can be current and kind of know what they're talking about. <laughs> like, oh, I don't remember that being in there. And so the book that I've now read for the second time is Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning, An Approach to Distinctively Christian Education by Douglas Wilson. And so the, the book is uh, doing exactly what the title says. He's going to build a case for classical education. And uh, so that's the book I have here. And uh, I think we've maybe talked about this and certainly some portions of it on previous episodes. So if some listener wants to be the sleuth and find out back in 2021, if we talked about this book, if you want to re-listen to some of those and find that and send it to me. It may or may not exist. I don't know, but you can look that up if you'd like. We've definitely talked about the ideas on multiple occasions. Yes, because uh, he's he is building off of some ideas from other people, right? As as uh, mentioned in his title. So, but as as the book suggests, he appeals for a distinctly Christian education, and we might say he's going to appeal strongly for a distinctly classical education. And uh, as he defines classical education, he would point, or excuse me, when he defines Christian education, he would highlight that having God as the logical focal point of the universe of a system of education is what ties all of your content together. It's a logical bind as you try to teach a child. Well, like, well, why do we do math? Why does chemistry work the way it works? Why did history happen that way? What's the the bind of all of those things is a sovereign, holy God who's created, who's in charge, who knows. And so he would build on some of those ideas as, as a Christian education must have God as its focal point. And uh, also, and he's going to highlight heavily that God's word is, uh, informs the goals, the proper goals of education. How could you have a distinctly Christian education that doesn't have goals established in the Word of God? And so, uh, mainly that children are not cute little bundles of goodness. He he thinks it's fundamental to the goal and uh, task of education to recognize the problem of sin that. Students will need to work hard to, to learn, and they won't want to work hard. 
students will naturally deviate. They will have problems that will require discipline. We were talking to a, a lady in our community, and she mentioned that the homeschool model she, that she was employing was unschooling. I had never heard of that before. Interesting. But it was essentially allowing the child to choose for themselves what they wanted to learn. And it was, had a lot of, well, not, not a lot of direction. Mm-hmm. And it was based upon a philosophy that the child is naturally good yep. and that the culture itself is what's binding the child and leading them astray. So it's kind of consistent with what you're talking about there. Yeah. And we're going to get into this a little bit in uh, some of my critique and commendation of the book, but that it really is a cornerstone in the philosophy of public education, uh, specifically in America, but I think you could say in the West, uh, in the modern era, is a very humanist agenda, which as a part of that is that humans are inherently good or Mm -hmm. some flavor that way that we're, we're not depraved. We don't need redeemed. Certainly we don't need a God to die for us. We're okay. And that's where actually the goal of education becomes to make us the most okay we can be that it's through education that we're saved and delivered from the ills of life. It's not God Mm -hmm. who does that. It's properly educating the human. Yeah. That's what delivers. Mm -hmm. And Wilson does interact with that. Before we get into that a little bit more, if you didn't catch it in the title, he is referencing uh, something, he he embeds a reference in his title, Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning. The Lost Tools of Learning was a speech, uh, probably also written, so you call it an essay, by a lady uh, named Dorothy Sayers, and it would originally have been delivered at Oxford in 1947. She would have been an inkling. She was cohorts uh, with uh, Tolkien and Lewis and Williams and Barfield and all those dudes. And so uh, really the kernel of that title is this essay that she's recognizing in the 40s that we're not educating the way we might want to. And at the very end of her essay, she talks about that we are living on education capital. Like these ideas and these institution that institutions that we have been have been building or that we're are working out that we, we have are the result of people who were educated in a way drastically different than how we're trying to educate kids today. And when did she write that about? When did she give that address? 1947. 47. Yeah. Where could somebody find it? Uh, well, it's in the appendix of this book. <laughs> um, uh, at the Faith Bookstore, is that what we're going for? No, that was what I wanted. It's in the appendix. It is at the yeah. Faith Bookstore as well. Yeah. And so you you can get a standalone copy of that essay. Uh, you can easily find it on the internet. My recommendation would be uh, that Canon Press did revise this book fairly recently, I think. 2022, just last 2022, year. 2022, which was a bummer because I taught the class in 21. And all my students are like, where do I find this book? And then it's like, oh, they just redid it. And so all, all my students this year have nice new copies. And uh, You've got but, your old book beat up one? Yeah, that I got used off of eBay and um, or I don't even know where I got it. But so I, I would I would recommend, I think this, this book is worth purchasing. Uh, you get the Sayers essay at the back, but you also get the book that, Wilson's written. And I, I do think it is something that, uh, kind of what we were talking about earlier where parents, you know, uh, 
realize that they have a single, you know, that they're raising someone who's single, mm-hmm. they might want to buy the book right. about singles. Well, what? why am I reading a book about educating kids? I'm a single guy. I don't have kids. Well, what if I have some someday? Uh, and I've, I, I think this has really helped me kind of galvanize some, uh, some thinking of like, if I did have a kid who was five years old, mm-hmm. and I'm going to start them down a path of education. What would I do? Yeah. What do I see is really important? I think Wilson is, is actually worth your time there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, back to, to Sayers. So th- that's what, what she's promoting is that we're on the shoulders of giants. Some of the educational or philosophical or religious giants of their time had all been classically educated versus modern education where they were taught a pursuit of learning and a love of learning with God uh, or theology at its core. And modern education has shifted from that to more of a subject kind of fragmented approach. Like, okay, you're going to go to history and you're going to learn history. You're going to go to English, you're going to learn English. You know, it's kind of these disjointed subjects without a focal point to bind them because there's no God. And what Sayers promotes, which is what Wilson is going to pick up on and say, hey, we need to do this, is we need to return to that. We need to have a Christian, and he would advocate also, classical approach to education. And uh, so here's what I really like about the book. I've got two points. So I'll preface this by saying, I went to public school. and. You know, I think I survived. You're okay. here. I'm here. He, Doug Wilson, went to public school. And he talks about his experience in the book. Hmm. And he has this great quote where he says, is the goal of education survival? Because I feel like a lot of Today. Christians... Huh? Today. Today. <laughs> well, he's like, a lot of Christians, when we talk about public education... It's like, well, they can survive. And I think he makes a great point. Is survival the goal of education? Like we kind of like cross our fingers that a Christian teen going to high school makes it, you know, or a public university. Can they make Mm -hmm. it? And he's going to kind of shift our thinking there. It's like, well, is that like, should that be the goal? Like, well, I hope they survived the Christian school too, you know, but like, isn't there more to it? (laughs) To survive the homeschool. What are you talking <laughs> yeah, about? Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> and uh, so what I think he does well, and this is from someone who uh, went to public school, didn't realize homeschooling was a thing as big as it was, had no idea what classical education was until about four years ago. I think he demonstrates the bankruptcy of the public education system, specifically in America, uh, really well. Like the model. The model and what it claims to do and what it has epically failed to do. Where um, you, you are, he, he breaks out statistics that are dated in my copy. I, I don't know if he revises them, but about how, you know, there's this big focal point on like literacy and how public education just fails to teach people how to read. And uh, that students, uh, we don't have to get into the numbers. I don't have the numbers in front of me because I didn't want to get into the numbers. But I think he demonstrates well that public education has some lofty goals and never 
gets close. <laughs> and, and then on top of that, they recognize that they're not getting close. And then they have their own ideas of how to reform the education system, which are also pretty, you read through them and you're like, yeah, well, that doesn't make any sense. Like, we just need more money, you know? Like, well, no, there might be some other issues here. And so I, I like the way that he presents, like, you know, let's let's put our eye on public education in America. Is that a way to educate your kids? And he's, well, it's not. It is a way. It is a way. Yeah. It's not a good way. It's not, a, at least in the way he presents it. You know, you can always present data the way you want there. And so I, I like that. Tim, you looked like you had a thought you wanted to throw in. Well, so like the goal is the goal to teach kids how to read. It's not really to teach them to read. It's to cultivate in them a desire to read. If they want to read, then they will read. And that so, was something that we kind of learned and the classical model kind of encourages that. I think it's actually biblical. Yeah. It's the principle of Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. And that was kind of a pivotal time in our personal journey in our education model, which was all homeschooled, by the way. Yeah. Um, where a classical model kind of encouraged more the desire and the love for education as opposed to just, well, they can read sentences and make sense of them. Well, and and he... so he will highlight the affections as, as, as an important part of classical education. And, and so does Sayers in her essay, like it's a love of learning mm -hmm. so that if they love how to learn, they'll learn anything. Right. Uh, what, what he points out with the reading is more so just the efficacy of their approach. Like do they, does, does our modern education, public education system believe that it's like a look say method of reading or is it a phonics based reading? And they've essentially rejected the model that works for a model that they think is the best. And it's, it's like funneling money into programs and he gets into that. But so that's kind of where he gets on the whole reading shtick is it's like, they, they don't know what they're doing. Like they, they, they think this is the best way. It's not the best way. It's proven not to be the best way, but we just keep pouring millions of dollars into it and it's failing. And so, so there's, there's that. It helped me think that through because I I was very positive to public education in the sense of I, I enjoyed my high school experience and think there were anything wrong with it. But I also think I had a lot of um, uh, a lot of blessing there that maybe not every public education system has. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And a lot of public school teachers have a real love for the kids too. So, you know, we don't want to you know, diss anybody that's out there really trying to make a difference in the lives no. of some of these young people. And and that's where it's not like, you know, it's a, it might be a broken machine, but there's still great farmers out there, you know? And, uh, and that's where I think for them not being Christian, most of them, uh, I had some wonderful teachers that I wish I could go back to and thank. Mm-hmm. You know, for, you know, I can think of some English teachers who are having me read things and having, t trying to get me to write about things well. And I was just like, you know, I, I couldn't have cared less, you know? And, uh, but partly that's because I was a sinful human and they had no way to deal with that. In fact, their worldview was that that's not what's wrong. Maybe they're not entertaining enough. You know, so like the, the the model that that public school had had no answer to a disruptive student, and they never cultivated in me an actual desire to 
learn. Mm-hmm. Now, I I did it because I wanted to, you know, I was ambitious, wanted to succeed. No way. Yeah, you know. So there's there's again other sinful motivations at play, but. <laughs> So I, I, I like how he analyzes public school, and I think as a parent, that's worth your time to consider what he what his ideas are. Not that you, you know, hook, line, sinker what he's saying, but I think it's a good perspective. And I really liked, kind of as the balance to that, is that regardless of if you send your kids to public school, Christian school, classical school, homeschool, I don't know how to already say that one, but... Regardless of how you choose to go about the education of your kids, he has a strong emphasis on whose responsibility is that. Doesn't matter who your teachers are at school. Doesn't matter if it's classical, Christian, public. It is always the parent's job. Mm -hmm. And I think he really emphasizes that well. And that's one of the big cornerstone ideas in the class, discipleship of children, is that you know, trying to help us realize if you're discipling another kid, they're not yours. You will never be, uh, with very rare exceptions, the primary discipler of that, of that child. And you know, if we're going to talk about educating a, a child to understand who the Lord is, to love the Lord, uh, that is an endeavor that is guided and led by a responsible parent, ideally. And so I really like how he emphasizes that. And uh, he has a great illustration at the beginning of one of his chapters to highlight this, where he's like, imagine you, you I'm going to paraphrase it to dramatize a little bit for a podcast. Imagine you have a young child, say six or seven years old, and you and your wife or you and your husband want to go out on a date night. So what are you going to look for? Look for a babysitter. You're just going to pull some random person off the street. You know, are you going to heavily vet the babysitter of your young child? Probably going to want to know who they are, who are their parents, where are they from? What are their beliefs? Like, are they going to come in and just taint my child? Like, is my child safe here? And now, fast forward, you know, five years or so, they're going off to school. Do you vet their teacher the same way you vet the babysitter? Hmm. And he's like, that's kind of crazy to me. (laughs) And like, well, hey, Johnny, what'd you learn at school? Oh, you know, who's your teacher? You have no idea. And he he's using that in the the stream of man, parents, you want to know who's educating your kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we had this discussion in class, so. If I was in a position where public education was my only option, I would feel compelled to do a lot of unlearning and relearning. I, I would want to have a, a strong pulse on, well, what did this person say today? Or what, what are you learning in this class? And what do you think about that? Mm-hmm. Is that true? You know, because I, I know what I was taught in the Christian school or in the public school and c- came face to face, front to front with you know, lies often. And so uh, I think I really like that emphasis of the book is just the role of the parent. And I think he's very unwavering in that. 
And not that you can't utilize an effective teacher in any one of the methods, but that it does eventually come back to a parent with oversight. Mm -hmm. And that's a very biblical theme. Yeah. Right in Deuteronomy 6. Yeah. Deuteronomy 6. The parents are the ones that are the ultimate one responsible for the education of their child. And in some situations, perhaps public education is the option and others Christian and in others homeschooling. Yeah. But it comes back to the parent being a selfless, sacrificial individual, the husband being the head of the household and guiding and directing and making a decision that's not easy necessarily, but best uh, for um, his children. Uh, I like to put it on the the the, the father. Yes, uh, but it's a collective decision. But you know, men, you're the, you're the husband, you're the father, you're the one that needs to uh, truly be uh, part of this uh, process and involved. And and wow, do we want to get into this, or we want to wait for the next one? Because there's another book. Well, let's save it for the next one. Where you've highlighted this book before, friend of the podcast, Scott Annual. Oh, let the little children come. He's going to talk about homeschooling and what's the tendency. I think it's annual. It might be Wilson, but I think it's annual. I was like, well, what would the tendency be of a father who wants to abdicate his uh, authority with homeschooling? Well, I'll just let my wife do it. Mm. And that would be just as wrong. As saying, well, we'll let the teacher at the public school do it. Well, or we'll let an, the teacher at the Christian school do it. Well, it's an oversight. So, yeah. you know, it's not necessarily that. For, for the father specifically is where I was. Yeah. I, so the father would then delegate it off to yeah, the there, wife, which is most of the time with the scenario. She's the overseer of the house. Yeah. And so that's often the way that it works. But, but so, today, my son, Zach, he came with me and he was with me most of the morning. Um, but. That was primarily because dad's workplace is very quiet <laughs> and mom's isn't as much. Sure. And he had a lot of work to do. Well, highlighting there just the, the maybe the unaware parent mm-hmm. where, you know, regardless of where they're being educated, you should probably have a decent level of involvement and oversight there as a, as a responsible parent trying to train your child in the way they should go. Uh, so, those are the two things I thought the book did well. we we'll try to go a little quickly here. Uh, we, we've talked enough about Wilson, but uh, uh, he demonstrates the bankruptcy of the public school system. He's a strong emphasis on the home and the responsibility of the parents to disciple their children. What does he not do well in the book? I don't think he guides a parent well if they don't have a classical Christian option. I think if he was to revise the book, which he did, I would love to see him say, well, okay, how would you navigate through some of these alternatives to what his clear and apparent option is? So what he did is he literally started a school for when his daughter needed it. Like, mm-hmm. well, we're not sending them there. We're going to we'll just start our own. And that is not the reality <laughs> for every parent. Like, we'll just start a classical Christian school. And so I think he could, uh, presents a more practical balance to his ideas. I think he states a balance, but I don't think he practically walks through what that might look like for, for parents. And uh, so maybe add there, uh, it was written in the 80s, I believe it was in the 80s. Yeah, it was the 80s. And so some of his statistics on education and education models, uh, reading it in 2021 and 2023, I was like, well, I'm you know, 40 years old. Is there any updates here? My what I would anticipate is that the statistics would continue to bear out that the public system might not be as great as, as we think. Um, and so I, I would hope in the revised edition, he would have some updated statistics for us. Uh, and so, uh, 
it's it's a dated kind of manuscript there. Overall, I do think it's worth reading. I would put this book high on the radar for parents looking to critically think about the education of their children. Not that you have to adopt all of its ideas, because I wouldn't, uh, but I think it would help you think through some ideas well. Uh, and that's where in the class we pair it with a couple of other things. Um, when I first inherited the class, it was called Christian Education of Children. And so I did have a very heavy education, like formal mm -hmm. education flavor to it. Yeah. It has since been renamed to Discipleship of Children, where I think the formal education of a child, which maybe should have some Christian elements in it, falls under the ultimate discipleship of the parent to the child. And so I, I kept the textbook because I thought it still fit well. Uh, as mentioned, a couple other books that are in the same ballpark, uh, as far as disciple of children, Discipleship of Children is concerned, Let the Little Children Come by Scott Annual, and For the Children's Sake, which is... Uh, her, la her name is Macaulay, uh, but it's, it's, it's another, that's a, a homeschool classical kind of a blend in that book. Uh, one of my pastors turned me on to that and I haven't read it yet, but I'm planning to. And so uh, I'm going to rank it. I don't know if I ranked it before, which if someone wants to find, if I did somewhere, I will love you till the end of time. Um, I, I'm going to go with a four, a four. I think it is good. I don't think it's like, you know, break the bank, order it tonight. You have to read it. So it's not a six, seven, eight, nine, ten. But I, I do think it is a solid, uh, a solid book for you. Um, and I'm going to put this at the end because I was just talking to someone the other day and they were like, you know, it's really funny when someone references a book or an author and the first thing they say is, well, you have to be aware that they're reformed or whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say this last. <laughs> There, he is very consistent. Now, I believe Doug Wilson is a post-millennial. Yes. Which means Christ does not come and set up his kingdom, pre-millennial. Christ comes back at the post of the millennium. So who builds the kingdom? Christians. And so why would Doug Wilson be really excited about education reform? He's consistent with his theology. And there is a statement that he makes towards the end of the book where it's very blatant that we do this as a part of the kingdom. And so I didn't say it at the front. I said it at the end. Just be careful when you read it because he's a little different theologically. Anyway, do you have any other thoughts there, Tim, before we close with a final meditation in God's word? Nope. I thought that was a really good caveat. And whether it's at the end or the beginning. As long as it's there. <laughs> way to vary it up. <laughs> And I don't know if that person will listen to this, but I was getting coffee with someone recently. And I just think it's funny when we're like, oh yeah, Doug Wilson, you gotta be careful. So put it at the end. The reason we have to, we always say that we're careful around Wilson because there's a lot of stuff that we like about him, but then there's that. Yeah. Uh, so Proverbs chapter 30. I've been working through Proverbs 30 on the podcast and today I'm going to continue. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 7, 17. So we're looking at two sections here. Uh, the first section, verses 10 through 14, do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you, and you be held guilty. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those who, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth 
are swords, whose fangs are knives, to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. Okay, so this is the four verses. Uh, The text starts out with um, this proverb, do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be held guilty. There's some question on whether or not that that, that verse specifically goes with the section before or the section after. Uh, because 11 through 14 is a clear unit. Uh, You may have noticed at the beginning, as I was reading, there are those who. Each verse begins with, there are those who. Well, I guess verse 13 is different. Um, But uh, the the reason that it, it, it is structured that way is because in the Hebrew, you technically have a generation. And the word generation begins verse 11, 12, 13, and 14. It's a specific literary device called an anaphora. Uh, So it marks 11 through 14 off as a clear structural unit. That then leaves verse 10. What in the world is it doing? And it's quite likely functioning as an inclusio with the end of Proverbs 30 uh, and the uh, Proverbs of Ugur, where he's basically advocating for people to live in contentment in the situation in which God has placed them which I find kind of fascinating because I know of a New Testament guy that said that quite a bit as well, the Apostle Paul. Uh, You know, if you find yourself, you know, you're saved in a specific situation, you know, you don't need to change that. Live in, uh, um, live a Christian life in the situation in which God has placed you. So uh, he's not advocating for any kind of of, um, laziness, but instead is just like, you know what, if you're striving to, Put yourself in a better situation or whatever, then you're going to end up hurting other people. So what do we have then in verse 10? Verse 10, do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be held guilty. Um, it's an interesting proverb, slandering a servant to the master. Uh, so several people believe this might be like a slavery type of a situation. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament, by the way, for its ancient worldview, was a very anti-slavery. I know a lot of times the apologetics people don't agree with that kind of a statement because there is slavery in the Old Testament. Uh, but if a person is, uh, if a person flees from their master, the Jewish person was supposed to take that person and not return them to their master. And so it was a, it was really a very anti-slavery. Um, Uh, law code for the culture in which it was written. So do not slander a a servant to his master. Otherwise, what's going to happen? Well, the servant is the slave, by the way. It's really probably better a slave. The slave is going to be like cursing that individual. And to whom does an individual appeal to for a curse? Who would a person, if you're going to curse somebody, to whom would you appeal to? God. Yes. One for one. <laughs> one for one, man. <laughs> Andy, Andy's usually here with me, and we can like stare at each other. And be like, I know, you, I know. You're you stuck. Go, man. <laughs> <laughs> you would, you would, you would curse him in the name of the Lord. Yes. And, and then, what's the last statement say? And you be held guilty. You be held guilty by whom? God. God. Exactly. Two for two. <laughs> two for two, man. It's like the Sunday school answer. Yeah, can't okay, go wrong. I can't go wrong. So, so um, the statement is very anti-slavery type of a message. In fact, if a if a if a slave is in a, a whatever type of a situation, and you're slandering him to the master, putting that slave then in a, a worse situation, he may appeal to God, and then guess what? God might do to you. 
if you're found guilty, then God's going to whack you, the rich person. Okay, do you see how this proverb is is portrayed from a rich person's perspective? So as, as this text begins discussing the rich, it continues therein. So now the four generations seem to have this connotation, this flavor, this exhortation against the person who is wealthy. This builds off of what we saw in the previous section. I, I know we it's a week ago or whatever, but we said, we discussed, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. That was verse eight. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Well, what does the rich person say? They speak a lie. And what is the lie? They deny the existence of God. What do we see in verses 11 through 14? We see the life of the rich person who's basically rejecting, denying the existence of God and living a selfish, greedy life. So what do we have? The first group, verse 11, there are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. Okay, so this is a very foundational concept, a very beginning of life type of a concept where the Cursing, by the way, is a catchword back to verse 10. They're cursing their fathers and they're not blessing their mothers. That's what these individuals, the father and the mother, were the ones that provided for you when you could not provide for yourself. You should bless them. You should thank the Lord for them. Instead, these people, they just want their parents to be dead so then they can take the inheritance and live life the way that they want to live. And as they look at themselves, what do they think of themselves? Verse 12, there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but they are not washed of their filth. The word for filth there is like refuse, like dung. And, and so this idea of cleanliness is a ritual cleanliness. And as they look at themselves, they look pure and holy and good and everything's great. But actually what the reality of their lives are is that they're covered in excrement. I mean, think like, you know, poop. That's what the idea here is of that word. And so they have this false estimation of themselves. So first, they're cursing their parents. Second, they have this false estimation of themselves and that they are holy and good and pure. And then third, there are those who are lofty. How lofty are their eyes? How high their eyelids lift? This is a very exalted uh, they have a very exalted view of themselves. Not only are their eyes lifted up, but their eyelids are lifted up. And the word there may be the pupils. It's like the focal point of the eyes. They just are so full of themselves. They have it all figured out. They are the ones that are wealthy. They're in control. They deny the existence of God. They don't care about other people. And they're simply consuming uh, those around them for their own personal benefit. And that's the last proverb, or the last anaphora in verse 14. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives. This is disgusting. To devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. So imagine a poor individual and they're on the earth. They are pictured as being a mouth and consuming the poor. They are removing the needy from among mankind. It's like, man, there aren't many poor people around here. Yeah, that's right. There aren't many poor people. You know why? Because we're wiping them out all the time. That's why there aren't any poor people here. Hmm. And that's what these people are. They're just full of themselves. There's no fear of God in their lives. And they're simply consuming, consuming, consuming. That leads to the next, um, the next, uh, um, uh, 
Proverbs. It's not an anaphora this time in verses 15 through 17, uh, but we do have some number parallelism. I'm now going to read verses 15 to 17. The leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Okay, so now what is the theme of this passage? Well, we have a leech. Wouldn't you be nice? Wouldn't it be nice to be known? Yeah, I'm a leech. Well, what is a leech? What does a leech do? Sucks blood. Sucks blood. That's right. It's just like more, 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 more. All right. Now the leech here is identified as what type of an individual? The leech has two daughters. So thus, what is the leech? Parent. A parent. Exactly. And the leech is feminine. So this would be the mother. Interesting. So if you're a leech and you're always more, 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 gimme, 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 guess what you're going to have for a daughter? The leech has two daughters. Give and give. Just as the mother, so also wow. the daughter. And so there's probably a little exhortation <laughs> there. Isn't that cute? <laughs> like mother, like daughter. Like mother, like daughter. Yeah. And they're just constantly wanting more, more, more. Three things are never satisfied. You can see the theme now in this, um, I think it's called an epigram, of uh, three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. And the four things, this is kind of odd, but you have Sheol, that'd be the grave, the barren womb, so the woman who cannot conceive, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. Fire just keeps burning. It never stops. just keeps burning and burning and burning. Then the text ends in verse 17. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures, which is gross. So the eye is going to be plucked out by the bird, by the vulture, and fed to the offspring of the vulture. There's a lot of stuff here. First, the eye. The eye is the organ of desire. You see something and then what? You want it. You want it. Man, I'm doing so good you today. You are doing awesome. Keep it up. We're almost there. You're <laughs> almost, you're going to go perfect. Okay. Verse 15. What did we have? The leech has two daughters. Give and give. Mine, mine, mine. What do we have at the end in verse 17? The organ of desire. I want. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother. But at the beginning of our section, we have a daughter. Now here, we have a son. And what happens to that eye? It will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. It says vultures there, but it's literally the sons of the vultures. It's literally the word for son. It means the offspring, the children, the babies. Because it's, it's, it's connecting to the daughter where the daughter says, give and give. Here you have the bird, the offspring, the child, consuming the eye of the covetous individual who, does not, who is not satisfied with the provision of God. This connects back to the idea that Agur stated in his two things I ask, deny them not before I die. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. 
contentment. Be content with the blessing with which God has given you. Don't be don't be like the rich fool who's just devouring and devouring and devouring. Don't be like the leech. Don't be like the um, the uh, the the young man that just wants and wants and wants and mocking the father and scorning the obedience of the mother. Uh, but just be content. Look around yourself as you go through a time of trial, as you go through a time of bounty. Look around and just say thank you. Thank you, Lord, for this blessing that you have given to me. Praise him for it. Say a prayer. And then pray for those who are less fortunate than yourselves, than yourself. Think, if God is blessed, how might I give? Instead of taking, how might I give to those who have less? And then just wait and see how God provides. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast. The Thinklings want to remind our listeners that the Thinklings podcast is our personal production. Our conversations, book discussions, and viewpoints may not represent the views of Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. Any questions or feedback should be directed to us at the Thinklings podcast.